From activism to entertainment, health to nightlife, profiles and courage to travel, and so much more. This is the Jeff Hawker Show, LGBTQ news and lifestyle conversation for the Coachella Valley region. Here's Jeff Hawker. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. We, uh, we're going to have Daryl Tucci, who is the Chief Development Officer of Desert AIDS Project, on the show today. And we're going to start out with a little bit of uh, memorial for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, welcome to the show today, Daryl. How are you? Good morning, Jeff. Uh, I'm wonderful, thank you. I appreciate you having me on this morning. Well, we're going to get in-depth with your life, Desert AIDS Project, as well as Desert AIDS Walk. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Let me let me do a couple quotes. Uh, a quote came out uh, from Chief Justice Roberts. Our nation has lost a jurist of historic stature. We at the Supreme Court have lost a cherished colleague. Today we mourn but with confidence that future generations will remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg as we knew her, a tireless and resolute champion of justice. Uh, she was an amazing woman. She, she, she was indeed. Um, you know, I, I, she is, has been one of the most ferocious uh, champions for civil rights and equity um, across all marginalized communities um, since the day she first sat on the bench and even before she sat on the bench. Yeah, you know, here was a woman who went to three Ivy League schools and when she got out of college had a difficult time getting a job. And they said because she had three things against her. She was a woman, she was a mother, and she was a Jew. And, you know, nowadays we don't look at those things as determinant, but when she first started her career, that was a big stumbling block. Yeah, you know, it, it, it certainly was. Um, the, all, all three of those were barriers for her. And I think, you know, most notably her gender as a as a result. Obviously, she's become probably most, the most well-known uh, fighter for women's equity. Um, you know, I think most people don't know that, you know, before she was a justice, obviously she argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. But before that, she was actually denied employment as a court clerk because of her gender. Yeah, she actually won five of the six cases that she... Uh, you know, argued in front of the Supreme Court, which in front of an all-male court, which is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here, here's a couple things that I wanted to go over about her. You know, some of the things that people don't realize is that the philosophy of somebody when they actually get appointed to the court is they it really starts to sink in that they're there for life. And they want to make sure that their decisions are not reversed for future, you know, by future Supreme Court justices. So they are very thoughtful about how they interpret the Constitution. You know, what, case in point, um, you know, Neil Gorsuch was has been was brought on 38 months ago, and everybody thought he was going to be a staunch conservative, but he was one of the deciding votes. <laughs> on uh, gay transgender workers and how they were protected in anti-discrimination law. Yeah, I, you know, his, his ruling in that case was certainly, I think, a surprise for many of us who've uh, 
spent most of our lives and careers in LGBT rights activism. Um, but also, you know, great to see that, you know, he, he truly interpreted the law the way it was designed to be. And, and he ruled, um, in, in my opinion, obviously, in the right way. She was known as a dissenter because the majority of the period of time that she was on the court, she was having to do the dissenting vote because it was very conservative. And despite her reputation for restrained writing, she gathered considerable attention for her dissenting opinion in the case of Bush versus Gore, which effectively decided a 2000 presidential election. And, and generally, when they have a dissenting vote, they say respectfully. And she just said, I dissent. <laughs> and throughout her career, I mean, she used to literally carry around a bag that said, I dissent on it. Yeah, you know, I, I've watched a few interviews uh, with her where she's you know, noted the fact that even though she's proud of also, you know, the majority opinion she wrote in her career, that some of the most uh, her proudest moments on the bench were her dissents. And I think to the same point you were making a moment ago about um, leaving a legacy behind due to by, you know, making rulings that last. She also understood the power of an eloquently and powerfully written dissent. So when future cases would come forward related to that subject matter, her hopes would be that those dissents would be considered by the justices of the future. Exactly. Some of the landmark LGBT cases that she was involved with, of course, um, marriage equality, which was a huge step and move Mm -hmm. forward for the LGBT movement. Um, Without that, a lot of other things wouldn't have fallen into place, like hospital visitation. You know, once you're married, then mm-hmm. you're legally able for hospitalization visits. Um, you know, having an equal say in what your partner is doing and, and all of the legal ramifications. <clears throat> I mean, it, I know a lot of LGBT organizations were somewhat against fighting for the marriage equality. And I know you sit on a lot of different um national and california boards um did did you did you were you involved with conversations with with organizations that said hey wait a minute maybe this is taking it too far you know at at the time when you know when you know there were two fights right there was a supreme court fight and you know there was the impact litigation that got us there and there were obviously also the legislative battles uh, that preceded it. And, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't say on a board level, but I would say amongst uh, in community, um, you know, many other people wondering whether or not it was taking it too far. And couldn't we just fight for X or Y and not <clears throat> take on what felt like the penultimate battle that we would uh, receive the most opposition for? And um, obviously, ultimately, the you know, I'm not quite sure if the LGBT community ultimately would have chosen uh, marriage to be the battle when we did, um, so much as the fact that actually, you know, the conservatives actually threw it in our lap um, right. and gave us the moment where we, we had to fight for it. And, you know, ultimately we won. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, I think it was kind of a polarizing issue, but I think that moment that that Supreme Court decision came down all of a sudden, the LGBT community came to, together like never before. I mean, I, I remember that moment, you know, I burst out into tears because it was such a powerful moment. 
it was. I, I, I also cried. And, um, you know, being we are here, you know, talking about uh, Justice Ginsburg, you know, she's given a, a lot of credit for where the court landed in that 5-4 ruling. And, you know, much of the argument she made um, in that case as a justice in the courtroom was based on, again, prior cases that had hit the Supreme Court related to gender equity. Um, and she used the basis of gender equity um, in her argument in that case. And um, unfortunately, you know, she helped us prevail. One of the other landmark cases she was involved with is in 2003, Lawrence versus Texas. <clears throat> and it was a ban on sodomy laws. Uh, saw the legalization mm-hmm. of same-sex sexual activity nationwide in the U.S., Kennedy wrote the majority opinion and Ginsburg joined him. The petitioners are entitled to respect for their private lives. The state cannot demean their existence or control their destiny by making their private sexual conduct a crime. Now, you know, you're involved, you know, you work for um, an organization, Desert AIDS Project. How does a law like that change the perception and change the stigma that goes with something like that, um, that that makes your job and the organization's job a little bit easier. You know, interesting. You know, to me, that ruling might have been maybe the most important uh, ruling in LGBT rights history. Um, even though marriage is enormous, um, for in my opinion, uh, the case we're now talking about, Lawrence v. Texas. You know, that ruling, in a way, the language that was chosen said we're human and we deserve um, the rights and respect that come with humanity, uh, which includes the basic privacy um, inside our own homes. Um, You know, for me, when one is finally uh, able to lift their head up and acknowledge the fact that I am I am fully equal in some way right under the law when, especially for those who lived in states where that wasn't the case you know a stigma begins to dissipate and people are able to live fully actualized lives uh people are able to live healthier lives they don't live in the shadows they they are able to step away from much that might be considered harmful behavior um, all of those things uh, absolutely participate in reducing HIV rates of infection. Well, and we're pretty fortunate living in the state of California. We have over 85 laws on the books in the state of California to protect LGBT people. And, you know, you know him as well. Mark Leno was one, uh, the author of many of those laws, along with Carol Migdon mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of the legislators that came out of the San Francisco Bay Area um, and then went on to become state senators. How do some of those laws also make it easier for what you do? Um, because you're not having to fight those when you're treating people. You you are accepting people into the organization, like you said, fully wholly who they are as people and not worried about all those other stigmas and things that are going along with it. Yeah, I I think before I answer that, I I wanted to shout out that, yes, you know, California has more LGBTQ protections on the books than any other state in the United States. Uh, And I'll give a shout out to Equality California, which is one of the boards I serve on. Uh, for their amazing work over many decades um, that has led to us having those protections. 
um, and also to the LGBT caucus of the California state legislature. You named some of the former members and the current ones are equally powerful rock stars who continue to push those forward. Um, you know, those, those laws all provide a platform. Um, they provide a platform for people to have health access and they provide a platform for people to not just have access to care, but they have access to culturally competent care as LGBTQ people. Um, those two things, even just by themselves, notwithstanding the rest of the 80-something other protections, um, certainly then provide the foray for DAP and other agencies like us to be able to be in center of community um, as places where people can come stigma-free and be their full selves and have their health taken care of in a way that recognizes their full selves without them having to leave any part of their identity um, in the parking lot um, when they get out of their car to walk in the door. Uh, and we should also do a shout out to the National Center for Lesbian Rights, who actually has yes. fought a lot of these cases in the Supreme Court. Um, Kate Kendall, you know, God bless her. She's retired now from NCLR, but she's the fight still goes on. We're talking with Daryl Tucci. He is the chief development officer for Desert AIDS Project. When we come back, we'll find out a little bit more about Daryl, how he got involved with Desert AIDS Project. And then later in the show, we'll talk about the Desert AIDS Walk and much, much more. You're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The Jeff Hawker Show, casting a brilliant rainbow of diversity on iHub Radio. Now, here's Jeff. We're in discussion with Daryl Tucci, who's the Chief Development Officer for Desert AIDS Project. I wonder, you know, you and I have become good friends over the last few years, but I want our listeners to get to know you a little better. Where did you originally come from, Daryl? Where'd you grow up? Oh, I hail from the Garden State. Uh, I am originally from New Jersey, and uh, for most of my life before moving to California, I split my time, uh, my my evening in life at home in New Jersey, and my work career and most of my uh, activities outside the home in Manhattan. What, what a great life! Good way to grow up. Huh? Yeah, that's what I miss. I miss the Big Apple always. I, I look forward to. Uh, uh, when COVID is over, going back and getting my annual fill for a week or two, uh, and then coming back home here to the Valley. Well, I, one of the brightest moments of my entire life, last summer, uh, the Palm Springs Gay Men's Chorus, we were part of a whole 500 different um, people who came from choruses all over the United States, and we sang at Carnegie Hall as part of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And I'll tell you, I had never seen Manhattan more alive in my entire life. Of course, it's, it's, it's a vibrant city, but I'd never seen the support for the LGBT community. You know, having the um, 
uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Empire State Building lit up in rainbow colors. You know, all the stores all around the city, um, you know, donning flags and, you know, having statements in their windows supporting Stonewall. Uh-huh. And then that moment that nobody ever thought would happen, the chief of police apologizes for Stonewall. I mean, I think that yeah. was brilliant. It was absolutely momentous. There's no doubt. So, uh, you know, I, I, did, I was not there for the anniversary, but I had been to Pride many times in New York, and my first Pride was in New York. And um, it's an amazing feeling to be part of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, especially when you're newly out. And that really reinforces the notion that uh, you're not alone. And uh, I remember going there when I was 19, and it was the first time that I truly understood the magnitude of the number of people that would become my LGBTQ brothers and sisters um, or siblings, um, and that I wasn't alone in the world as a newly out person. Well, and, you know, you being on the eastern side of the United States, myself being in San Francisco, you're, you're a little bit younger than I am, but I landed in San Francisco in 1979 at really kind of the beginning of the real crisis of HIV AIDS epidemic. And, you know, I saw a decimation of our community in San Francisco. I, I know it was equally as bad and in some cases even much worse. Um, were, you, were you involved in the fight when you were back in New Jersey and Manhattan? You know, I was um, a handful of years later than you because I'm a handful of years younger than you. Um, but in, at, towards the tail end of the worst of it, um, when I came out, it was in the mid-90s. And, um, yeah, I absolutely, uh, as a young gay, newly out man, uh, was um, in Manhattan um, kind of sowing my oats, I guess you could say, um, at 19 years old. And I had already lost years prior, uh, the first two people in my life to AIDS, uh, my grandfather and also my childhood best friend. And, you know, many years before I came out and, um, you know, for me, as hard as that was, I think it also instilled in me this fear um, and also this awareness so that when I came out, um, even though I think like many of us, there were wild oats to sow, um, that cognizant nature of having lost them in my memory all the time um, also kept me safe um, and helped me choose uh, safer paths through that time. Um, but I remember I was in the city and I was, uh, I caught the tail end of the house movement that most of America has now grown to uh, just learn about through Pose um, uh, as a, an amazing TV show. And also um, at the piers where there is a, you know, always had been a large underground queer arts movement. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I, I'm blessed that those things uh, were part of my history. You know, interestingly, as a result of that, um, I became sort of an activist and involved very early in the aid services organization for northern New Jersey called New Jersey Buddies. And um, by the time I was 22 or 23 years old, I forget which, I, I had joined their board to um, help take care of our community and, um, and to help the legacies of those people who I had lost when I was only 12 and 13 to be able to live on and be taking care of others. Well, and I'll tell you, it, it almost feel, felt like we were compelled and almost drawn 
to fighting, supporting, and giving as generously as we could to these different organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, in San Francisco, on, on the other coast, you know, I was very involved with um, the AIDS quilt, the first March on Washington, um, working with the Shanti Project, um, you know, so many different programs. When, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the movement and then we're going to get into the Desert AIDS Project and talk a lot about your programs and services that you offer. The phone number at the Desert AIDS Project is 760-323-2118. Their website is desertaidsproject.org. We're talking with Daryl Tucci, the Chief Development Officer, and you're listening to The Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Live from Palm Springs, the Desert Cities A to Z on LGBTQ. This is the Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. We're talking with Daryl Tucci, who's the Chief Development Officer for Desert AIDS Project. Welcome back, everybody. We are very fortunate, Daryl, that you migrated to California. What brought you back out to Palm Springs? Uh, first, uh, to California, I uh, moved to become the head of development um, and philanthropic services at the Liberty Hill Foundation in Los Angeles. And I spent uh, six years of my life there uh, doing work that I'm, I'm still quite proud of. Uh, they are one of the most progressive public institutions um, in, uh, on the West Coast. And then uh, just as I felt like I was settling into L.A., the recruiter called uh, when DAP was hiring uh, their new chief development officer when my wonderful predecessor, Sue, uh, was retiring. And uh, a few very long conversations and meetings and tours of the campus later, um, I had agreed to move here and uh, become their head of development. And it's been seven and a half wonderful years later. What year was Desert AIDS Project established? Uh, Desert AIDS Project was established, oh, you're going to catch me on the morning without enough coffee. <laughs> I want to say 1984. Okay, so, you know... Don't quote uh, me. I might, I might be off a year, but I want to say it's 1984. It's a good... You know, but more than 30 years. So, you know, Desert AIDS Project has been a major force in this community for so long. During COVID-19, you guys have had to really kind of change your model a little bit and move into being a center for COVID-19. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so, you know... DAP has been found was founded obviously as an aid services organization. Um, it is still in our heart and soul what we do at our core, but we've opened our doors wider over recent years to as a federally qualified health center to care for everybody. Uh, you know, when COVID uh, first hit, uh, very quickly um, our physicians, the senior staff, the board uh, came together and said, you know based on our 36 years of history and understanding what it means to take care of community in the face of a pandemic related to an infectious disease, um, it is the right thing for us to do to step forward. 
Uh, we have some of the best infectious disease uh, specialists in the state um, on our staff, and they agreed to lead us um, so that we could help take care of this community. So um, a COVID clinic uh, was established very quickly uh, once uh, we understood the magnitude of what California and this community was going to face. And uh, now to up until today, since that COVID clinic started, uh, more than 3,500 people have been seen in that clinic. Uh, they've been triaged and tested uh, when necessary, provided respiratory therapies, and obviously connected to hospitals when necessary as well. Well, and, and DAP has a lot of really strong partnerships throughout the Coachella Valley. Give us an idea of who some of the partners, like the referral partners and, and you know, ways that you work together. Like, for instance, Walgreens, you know, they have a, a pharmacy right there at DAP. Yes, you know, we, we, we certainly couldn't do what we do um, effectively without amazing partnerships. And yes, I'll, I'll give a, I'll join you in the shout out to Walgreens. Uh, they are our pharmacy partner um, every day in making sure that the the combination of doctor, medicine, and all other forms of psychosocial support that keeps humans thriving um, is there um, and available and, um, you know, on site, but also at all the other Walgreens stores across the region. Uh, you know, we, we work... Um, very closely with Desert Care Network, um, as well as Eisenhower. Uh, we, you know, and I will say there's probably not a nonprofit in the Valley that doesn't somehow intersect uh, with the scope of work that we provide, whether it be us referring to them or them to us, uh, whether it be Jewish Family Services or uh, Cleaning Us to Salud de Pueblos in the East Valley, et cetera. It's, it's a, quite a lengthy list. Yeah. And you guys are a full-service center. I mean, you, you focus on primary care, social services, dental, behavior, of course, sexual health. Give us an idea of some of the programs you have for behavioral health. Sure. So we are blessed to be one of the few organizations that do what we do that truly has a a, a fully cohesive and comprehensive behavioral health program. Um, so that means um, our, the clients at Desert AIDS Project have access to uh, psychiatry, uh, psychologists, therapists, addiction recovery support, et cetera, uh, support groups, um, all under our roof. And um, due to COVID, uh, like our medical practice, our behavioral health practice is also now available through telehealth. Um, so that folks who need to be able to access that from the safety of their home are able to do that. HIV prevention is sort of at the core of, you know, try, trying to find a cure, trying to find a vaccine is also very important, but also prevention. Um, tell us about some of the programs, and I understand that you now have a free self-HIV test. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that is most challenging during COVID is um, keeping folks safe. Uh, we are experiencing a spike in new HIV tests in the Coachella Valley. Uh, sorry, not, not HIV tests, a spike in new HIV cases in the Coachella Valley uh, since COVID has started. And we are uh, working hard to help make sure that that doesn't continue. So uh, the, the Community Health Department, um, under the leadership of my friend and colleague, CJ Toby, has uh, really been working on innovating um, our education and prevention work from making sure the mobile unit is fully being utilized for testing on a regular basis to also shipping um, at-home HIV tests uh, to folks where they're needed to making sure that we are present 
uh, safely um, where we are needed across the valley as well. And also that, you know, the, the care that used to be provided in the dock um, at DAP, which is now the COVID clinic, has now also all been fully expanded into uh, one of the two primary care clinics um, at DAP, making sure that all that prevention work can continue every day. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about two of the angels. Of course, um, one we lost uh, about a year ago, Barbara Keller, um, and also Annette Block, who helped provide funding for you to expand your cancer center. Yes, you know they are certainly two angels. Um, you know, Barbara Keller is a is a close personal friend of mine, and um, I, I, I miss her every day. But most yeah. importantly, she was a really close personal friend to DAP um, and everybody who worked there and supported the agency. You know, her leadership uh, was so strong. Uh, she truly believed in her heart. Every human uh, had a right to be their authentic self and also to have access to all the support services and healthcare that the AP provides. And it is actually thanks to Barbara as Angel One that Angel Two and that block came into our lives because Barbara introduced her to us. Um, and Annette started with her first major gift several, several years ago uh, with creating the Annette Block Cancer Care Center um, at DAP, which focuses on cancers specifically that tend to be comorbid with HIV status. Um, and later she stepped forward with another leadership gift related to Get Tested Coachella Valley and uh, has since then stepped up with one of the largest gifts um, in the funding of our campus expansion capital campaign. Um, so yes, two wonderful angels, two big, beautiful, hearted, hearted women uh, that uh, are looking over the people we serve every day. What does the term comorbid mean? Uh, comorbid, so uh, basically means that they exist together. So uh, there are specific forms of cancer uh, that tend to be more likely as a result of living with HIV. And you guys are in the process of doing an expansion, and you also took over the service of the um, the county center next door. Yes, uh, we acquired the county building next door as part of our campus expansion. You know, and Jeff, it, it, it amazes me in the seven and a half years that I've been at the AP, the number of people we serve on an annual basis grew from 1,800 to now 7,500. And the, as big as the building looks at Sunrise and Vista Chino, it is just not big enough to serve that many people. Right. Uh, and it's certainly not big enough to serve the numbers of people who are not yet in care who need access to care. So a few years ago, we started a capital campaign to expand. And put the first st stages of that expansion were the acquisition of that county building and uh, building the first two of what will become three clinics in that building, uh, both of which are now fully operational in that building. Is it unique for an HIV organization like yours to have housing? Uh, yes uh, and no. You know, there are HIV AIDS organizations specifically that only do housing in parts of the country, like uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, there's one that's been there for years. Uh, but, you know, when you think about uh, the L.A. LGBT Center and some others, even though we're not an LGBT center, there's some synchronicities there. Uh, housing is understood to be a very important part of the basic needs. Right. If we right, think about yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
we can't get someone to think about taking their meds every day and eating proper nutrition um, and doing all the other things that we need them to do to live a healthy, vibrant life if they don't if they have housing insecurity and they don't know where they're going to rest their head safely at night. So housing is a part of an overall health um, and wellness equation uh, that we believe is is vitally important. Well, and especially when your health improves to get, I mean, that's what nobody expected, you know, because when I went through the AIDS crisis, the life expectancy was less than five years. Now, mm-hmm. people with HIV can live long, healthy lifestyles, you know, because they can take, you know, a lot of the medications now and and not even be detectable. So, you know, what happens now is they're able to get back into the working community like they never would before. Mm-hmm. So it, it, yeah, is, it is important to have that housing so they can transition back into their regular lives. Yes. Yeah. House, housing and nutrition are uh, the platform under kind of the basic needs uh, to help people be able to move forward in life uh, towards uh, their self-actualization. So one of the major fundraising efforts that you guys do every year is, of course, the Desert AIDS Walk. It's coming up on October 23rd and 24th. And it's like the organization, you've had to re-envision what this event was all about. So give us an idea of how the structure has changed. But in essence, the fundraising efforts are very similar as well, you know, as it relates to an individual going out and getting donors to help support their uh, walk, as well as team efforts. Sure. Um, you know, you're right. Obviously, uh, for those who participated before, uh, they know that the Desert AIDS Walk um, generally brings together 2,000 people uh, on an average year, and that that 2,000 people congregate in a park together for a health and wellness festival, and then take to the streets of Palm Springs and an amazing massive visibility to show uh, their commitment to our mission after they have just spent weeks and weeks and weeks raising money to support our agency. And obviously in light of COVID, we, we cannot come together as 2,000 people in one place. Um, you know, but uh, you know, the walk has also never really been about the, the, the balloon arches and the live music we provided and whatnot. The walk has always been about hundreds if not thousands of people taking the time for weeks in advance to raise money to support what we do every day which is take care of the well-being of this community and currently 7500 members of it um so for me i'm still looking forward to it and it sounds like you've got a break coming so maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it afterwards we will we're talking with daryl tucci who is the chief development officer of desert aids project If you want more information about the Desert AIDS Walk, go to desertaidswalk.org. And we just want to do a shout out to some of your major partners, Walgreens, Desert Care Network, Gilead, and the Grace Helen Spearman Foundation. You're listening to the Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. The Jeff Hawker Show, casting a brilliant rainbow of diversity on iHub Radio. 
Now, here's Jeff. We're talking about the Desert AIDS Walk, which is coming up on October 23rd and 24th. Very excited to be on the phone with Daryl Tucci. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm enjoying my morning with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. We we were talking a little bit about how the Desert AIDS Walk has been re-envisioned. Now, there's seven parks involved with the event this year. How does that work? So basically what we wanted to do is that, you know, once folks have raised their money, you know, bringing visibility to the cause and I think still being able to participate and feel a connection to each other is still important. And, you know, our folks, uh, our supporters told us that's important. So uh, if when one goes to DesertAidsWalk.org to register, uh, which I hope everybody listening will, uh, on the main page, you'll find a list um, and hyperlinks to um, a number of places. One is the primary route that we usually walk each year through downtown Palm Springs, uh, which you could actually download as a PDF and use. And the uh, other starting at Ruth Hardy Park. Starting at Ruth Hardy Park, walking right to, past Desert Care Network, um, and down through downtown to the Art Museum, et cetera, and back up. So it's a it's a lovely walk, um, and uh, also right through the most vibrant part of town. The the other links, knowing that some folks right now, in the interest of safety, may not want to travel that far if they don't live in Palm Springs. We do have people who come in for this walk from every corner of this valley and beyond. Yeah. Uh, there there are lists of parks um, in almost every city of this valley uh, for folks to consider, you know, taking their stroll in that morning. Um, and, and or, frankly, if you don't want to get out or you're not safe to get out uh, and be in a park and you have a treadmill at home or just want to walk around your HOA, uh, you know, that is also a wonderful way to participate. And we'll be encouraging people to take photos and post them on social media uh, and to share their experience with one another over those two days. Are people able to post their photos on the Desert AIDS Walk Facebook page? Absolutely. If they go to uh, the uh, the sorry to Facebook, um, and then they will find the page for Des- virtual 2020 virtual Desert AIDS Walk. I believe is the full title, yeah. um, or virtual Desert AIDS Walk 2020. Um, if they note that they're attending, uh, I believe the wall then becomes available for posting of their photos, and we'd encourage them to use the hashtag DAW2020. And you've got a leaderboard. Should we do a shout out to some of your leaders that have already raised some substantial funds? Sure. Uh, Michael Isbell. If you're looking at it. Go. Yeah. My, well, I, yes. I, I downloaded our brand, this. Our I, brand new board member. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Michael Isbell has raised $3,400 already. James Lindquist, who I know has been a, a supporter for years, he's raised over $2,400. Uh, David Brinkman, your CEO, has raised over $2,200. Mark Hamilton, $1,200. And Kevin Bass, uh, $1,100. You know, your goal, at least on the page for now, because I know that may change if, mm-hmm. if things are going really good, is $350,000. What is that money right. used for as far as services? You know, that, that money is supporting everything we do today. Um, you know, there are three main pillars I think our work fits under today. One is COVID and all that we do. 
And I do want to actually just quickly note, um, uh, kind of for public service purposes, for anybody who has questions about COVID, uh, whether they're symptomatic or not, if they should get tested or not, please call our hotline. It is open Monday through Friday during business hours, and that number is 760-992-0407. And they are there to help you with questions and to guide you towards testing. Um, So one of the things that is being funded through this walk is our clinic and that hotline. Um, Other things that are being tested are, um, sorry, are funded through this work is obviously our longstanding work in caring for people living with HIV every day today that are in our care, and also our continued HIV prevention work. And lastly, uh, all the work we do to increase health access for everybody. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we serve everyone who needs it, um, and we mean that. So that work means being able to make sure there are resources in place for the person who walks in the door or picks up the phone and calls us every day needing care. And one of the newest programs that was launched in light of COVID, understanding so many people lost their employment and their health insurance, is called One Call. And today, that program will be funded through the AIDS Walk, like everything else we do. And for folks listening who may also find themselves maybe not having access to quality health care and or insurance, I'd encourage them to make that one call uh, tomorrow. You know, from Monday through Friday, from 9 to 4, um, you can call the number I'm about to share. And in 45 minutes to an hour, our staff will help you enroll in insurance and help you schedule your first doctor's appointment. And that number is 760-992-0426. And your website is desertaidsproject.org. Is it still kind of um, standard for a sexually active person to be tested for HIV like every six months? Um, I, I believe our infectious disease specialist would would uh, would suggest uh, full STD, STI screenings every 90 days. Oh, okay. Even more so. Well, that's good. I mean, you only have power when you have information. And I think it's so important to know whether you have HIV because, you know, in the past, you know, it was a death sentence. It no longer is. And there's no stigma attached to it anymore. So go out, get your tests Mm -hmm. and have the power and the information you need to get the health care you need. Mm -hmm. And Desert AIDS Project is there for the entire community. And if they do, if folks do want to come in and get screened for STIs and or HIV or both at our DOC, uh, which is the name of our sexual wellness clinic, uh, first of all, warmly, please do. Uh, there are no barriers um, to making that happen. We will see you no matter what. Um, but also if, uh, as Jeff just mentioned, if you know someone listening is sexually active and also has questions about PrEP, Uh, as a preventative method to keep themselves safe from HIV, uh, that clinic is the right place to have that conversation as well with no stigma. And if our doctors and you as patients agree that uh, you are a really good candidate for PrEP, uh, they will happily um, help you navigate getting the prescription from um, from our doctors and making sure you get the financial support you need through pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, uh, to have that prescription filled at the Walgreens at Desert Age Project. And again, it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, bisexual. Desert AIDS Project is there to serve the entire community. Correct. Uh, We are there to serve everybody regardless of their health diagnoses as well as any of the demographics you just mentioned. Well, it's been a pleasure and a thrill having you on the show today. We'd love to have you back. Uh, 
your wealth of information about Desert AIDS Project and the LGBT movement in general. Thank you, Daryl. Uh, thank you for having me, Jeff. I look forward to walking with you on October 23rd and 24th. I do as well. Let me give that information again. You can call Desert AIDS Project at 760-323-2118. Their website is desertaidsproject.org and also desertaidswalk.org. We look forward to seeing you guys again soon. Thank you for listening to Jeff Hawker Show on iHub Radio.